I don't have the experience of being a survivor, right? I don't have that referential tangibility, meaning it didn't happen to me, and yet I bear its marks. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker and producer Amy Ziering has dedicated much of her career to fighting injustice by giving voice to survivors of abuse. In collaboration with Kirby Dick, Amy produced the documentary The Invisible War in 2012 that exposed an epidemic of rape in the military. Two years later, they joined forces again to produce another exceedingly powerful film, The Hunting Ground, that examined the prevalence of sexual assault on college and university campuses. I was delighted to sit down with Amy to explore the contours of her remarkable career as a filmmaker and as a thoughtful agent of change. At the outset of our conversation, I attempted to explore with Amy where she found the considerable courage behind her work. As you will see, she demurs and is reticent to take up any kind of heroic mantle. By the end of the episode, however, the source of her strength and fearless motivation is abundantly and movingly evident. One of the things that I talk about at Art Center is that we teach courage. And if there was one word I would use to define your work, it's courageous. And often we're interested in understanding where that comes from, who people are, who artists are, and what motivates them to do certain kinds of things. And so that kind of gets to my first question for you is, where does your courage come from? That's a really interesting question because I don't think of myself as courageous. Mm. I just love to do what I do, and it sort of has always just been ingrained in me to sort of follow, just to be super outraged by injustice and sort of follow that anger <laughs> to where it leads me. I mean, I'm a producer, so I'm more behind the scenes than a director. I let other people do the talking, but and I think they're the courageous ones. They, they are certainly courageous, though. Knowing your work, the work you've done on sexual assault, even the, the, the piece on Derrida, there's a deep courage there. There's a boldness. There's a willingness to uncover. There's a, uh, a strength to your work that says, these stories need to be told. This silence has to end. And there's an incredible power to that, an inspiration to that, that I think, again, I would call really courageous. Are you not in touch with that at all? No, I mean, honestly, I'm trying to just, I mean, I remember after Invisible War came out and I got that comment over and over again, like, weren't you afraid? And like, honestly, it just never occurred to me. I mean, I just felt, again, it was more from having done the research, having spoken to so many survivors, men and women. Um, and once I heard their stories, I sort of was all in. And so like nothing else kind of entered into the calculation. You know what I mean? It was like, oh my God, you know, I'm here. I, I'm not going to let you down. I'm going to tell this story. And so it wasn't, I wasn't thinking like, what will the Pentagon do? And Derrida, was it courageous? Well, let me put it this way. It was a, a very bold and very honest piece. And, you know, the piece says this in its way, that there were a lot of constraints and a lot of limits. And you, I think, courageously worked around those to reveal some interesting things. 
Um, I was determined. Well, okay, determined and courageous maybe are slightly different. I was determined, yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, that that comes through, and maybe I'm mistaking that determination for courage. Together with Kirby Dick, Amy directed a documentary film in 2002 on the great French philosopher Jacques Derrida, with whom Amy had studied as a graduate student. Derrida is best known for developing a form of analysis known as deconstruction and is a major figure associated with postmodern philosophy. I found the film fascinating for several reasons. Most pronounced was Ziering's skillful application of Derrida's theory of deconstruction to the form of the film itself. She infused the documentary with a filmic self-consciousness that exposed the very content it explored. I discussed this with Amy and attempted to leverage her work on Derrida as a way to investigate her later films, The Invisible War and The Hunting Ground. There's a sort of a bold honesty of the film um, because there's a, um, this wonderful kind of self-consciousness that runs through it all, right? That here you are presenting this, this man and his thinking and doing this film on him and it's simultaneously always talking about the limits of biography um, it's very self-conscious about technology and he's always talking about you know i can't be natural here it's not a natural situation and so it's also talking about the artifice of interview at the same time so the the form of it and what you you expose in terms of its own kind of filmic self-consciousness and the, or the self-consciousness of biography or however you want to express it, is in a way what the film is about. And it's a kind of, and, and that's what I, I actually, that's what stirs me about it. That's why I think it's so bold and so interesting to think about his work and what that's about and what you're doing simultaneously with that film. I love that you, that's exactly right, and you completely got it. And I don't know how many people actually at the time it came out really understood it, but I guess for me, or what was interesting for me was the challenge, right? Jock's work is always about, um, you know, this tension between um, constitutive and performative. It is like sort of the content of what you were saying is important, but also the way in Mm -hmm. which you are saying it is also equally significant. Um, And sort of the tension between the two and so I really wanted the film to not only, um, it couldn't operate just on the level of explication or explanation, but it also had to sort of have that performative level as well. So, you know, um, so there's always a self-consciousness to his work, um, right, exactly. to everything he writes. So exactly. I couldn't make a film that also didn't in some ways mime or rehearse that gesture, as sort of an ode or an homage to him, but or that's a working brilliant, through. Amy. That's wonderful. Oh, well, thank that's, you. <laughs> that's that's really. I mean, that's what that's what's um, made it so interesting to experience, right? Right. And, and to see that, and to see what you do with the form itself is is amazing. Oh, thank you. I'm wondering just to. Uh, I want to talk about a few specific things regarding that, but before I do, is there? Um, a parallel in your later films, do you think? Absolutely. Um, of a, that, uh, either a self-consciousness of what the content is that you're trying to talk about. How does that manifest? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. And then I do want to go back and say something else about the Derrida film. Um, Kirby Dick, the director I work with, um, comes from a conceptual art background, and I come from a literary theory and, you know, kind of political theory and deconstructive, in quotation marks, background. And he did uh, This Film Is Not Yet Rated, which was about the ways in which the the ratings board that rates films has sort of ideological biases that we don't even know or recognize, right? So that was sort of the political 
conceit of the film, but what was so clever about it was that he makes the documentary and then he mails that documentary to the film board to view it and rate it, and that's in the film itself, right? So right there, you're sort of, the film is performing the very act it's Mm. interrogating, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's the conceptual art move. So likewise, when we teamed up to do, you know, he we co-directed Derrida, but then we re-teamed up to after this film is not ready to do Outrage, um, which was a film about closeted politicians who actively legislate against gay rights. Right. We decided, and again, so it's this same sort of double gesture. We don't want to just make a film about politicians who actively closeted politicians who actively legislate against gay rights. We wanted the film to be implicated in the very thing it was interrogating. So we decided that the film would itself out someone if that makes sense, so that we're part and parcel to the very narrative we're trying to show people. And and so we're morally implicated as well, right? So it kind of ups the ante. Um, so we did that. You know, we ended up outing Charlie Crist um, in our film. <laughs> and, um, um, so that was sort of the beginning of this kind of understanding and move it forward to um, Invisible War and Hunting Ground. What we decided there was also, okay, we can pretty much, we know how to make movies and we can, we think we could, you know, give me a topic. And if it interests me, I could probably know, figure out how to deliver something solid. But what if you sort of understood how to, what if then we took a film and tried to have it be a, a performative act in itself, hmm. you know, um, so we, again, with Invisible War, it's breaking news. So it's not just, again, about a book that you're adapting or something that happened in the past, but it itself is this Absolutely. vessel. Right. It's an interesting segue, what you just said, to this theme that runs through um, the Derrida film about watching. Mm. And one of the most striking moments to me is Derrida watching the monitor of your interview of him with his wife, Marguerite. So that the, we are, we, and sometimes we even see you, I think. So Mm -hmm. we as the audience are simultaneously watching you watch him watch the Mm -hmm. recording of it. Mm -hmm. And, and this level of these multiple levels of, of watching and observing are at once the very thing we're talking about. They're at once both the content and the interrogation of the process itself, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, of the Mm -hmm. interview itself. Mm -hmm. So as you work around uh, the various constraints or present something like that, um, are you hoping for those interviews to maybe show an unconscious gesture, maybe show some kind of a secret that spontaneously would come up because the interview form allows for that, and the levels of watching then become that much more interesting in terms of what we're trying to see. Do you do you follow my question? Let me let me try and get at what you're asking. I think in a in a in a slightly different way. I mean, when I started out making the film, when we started out making the film, um, I had no idea he would be so um, completely and adamantly and unrelentingly on guard every second. Yeah, he was. Um, I've never, ever worked with any subject um, that was able to maintain that boundary with such rigor. Um, uh, uh, Over the course of filming, usually like you hang out with a subject, maybe they're nervous or uptight or on guard for the first half hour, honestly, and then like they forget it. and um, And I kind of had always hoped that would happen with shock. 
Um, and it absolutely never did. So my challenge was, okay, if he's only going to give me no, how do I turn that into something interesting? And um, and how do I how do I sort of make that into a yes, which is what you're saying? Like, did I learn a secret or did I, you know, what? So we decided to sort of play. So, okay, you're going to give me that. I'll play it in spades, you know, and let's see what happens. Because that's all I was able to do exactly, and, and, yeah. and give it, you know. So when I do the what I call the mise en abeam, which is the interview and then Derrida watching the interview and then the, you know, the sort of infinite imbrication of the interview within and the interview. And mirrors, too, you use, too, yeah, and, right? And so mirrors, we, right, right. So exactly what I'm saying, too. That was sort of, a, for me, an echo of sort of de- deconstruction always asking you to continually highlight right. context and exactly. never be unaware and unvigilant, you know, exactly. which also you see him doing. Oh, you've got a camera here. You've got lights here. You know, he never, and no matter how many times I would say, Jacques, just pretend we're not here. Like, that was like chum to a shark. Then, of course, he would mention us 30 times. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. One, one other question I want to ask you about that, which I also thought might be interesting to explore your work and just the interview process too, is um, I think it's when you ask him about love, he distinguishes between the who and the what, mm-hmm. you know? And it struck me as interesting with way to think about particularly the women, but also some of the men too, that you interview in, in Hunting Ground and Invisible War as, as you know, who they are as people mm-hmm. and what they are as victims. Mm-hmm has a really interesting kind of dynamic to it as we're experiencing it, and has it has its own kind of power. And I wondered if that resonated for you at all. Yeah, definitely. But say more, what were you thinking? Well, I just, uh, that's the, uh, that's the, it seems to me the power of it, right? Mm-hmm. That we are simultaneously trying to understand who who is this person? Right. I, you know, we're not, the interview form in your films, right, don't just objectify them as victim. right. There's right, something right. about what you're doing, the questions you're asking, right. the tear that comes out of the eye, the close-up on the face. It just, it's its heartbreaking. I mean, it goes very deep for me, yeah, right? Yeah. And yet, thats I'm toggling between them as right, as right. as who they are and what they are right. simultaneously. Oh, that's beautiful. I never I never linked it to the, what happened with the uh, those Derrida interviews. That was interesting. So, God, how long, we really, I mean, I filled in for a very long time because it's like, he was so reluctant. And I remember kind of playing with the footage, looking at the footage. I did an edit. Kirby did an edit. And uh, I just said, you know, I'm going to try something totally different. You know, this interview process is clearly not working because he really, I said, let's just get a room and like act like it's like a jazz. He loves jazz. He loved jazz. Okay. So I knew that was the musical thing. I said, well, act like I'll just get him riffing, you know? And so that's why I just was throwing out, I said, I'm going to put him in this white room. You know, we did this sort of, I had no idea what I would get. And we're just going to, I'm just going to throw these topics out that are broad. And you saw him schooling me. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, Amy, like he's mm-hmm. a ridiculous child. Like, mm-hmm. please, you're just mm-hmm. going to ask me to talk about love. And I was like, I was just like, you know, and then of course he delivers this incredible, you know, soliloquy on love that was so beautiful, mm-hmm. as you said, and haunting. Mm-hmm. And and actually the one on um, Echo and Narcissus too is like, for me, one of the most gorgeous, yeah, all about love as well that I've, you know, ever heard. Um, that was you know, sort of how we, I was able to sort of at least a little bit um, get him to break. It, he didn't even break because it was still sort of all, uh, you know, on a on an intellectual level that that's what he would give me. But Well, for me, the, you know, and by the way, that scene when he's talking about Echo and Narcissus also, we are using mirrors there too, which is, is lovely. I mean, this is wonderful, playful use of mirrors in that, in that shot as well. Right? But I wanted to ask about Echo and Narcissus, right? Because... It's it's the allegory for filmmaking 
par excellence, yeah, right? Yeah, truly. I mean, I'm echo to his narcissus. I can't. He's he's the subject. Wow. And he can only say things, right? He, he can say things. I can only echo them because I have this limited, I've, I've recorded it, and I'm constrained by what he said. Right. But I can do whatever I want with what he said, right. you know, which is echo, right? right, right. So I, I, that's why I made sure we talked about that yeah. for the film. I think there's courage there, Amy, but I'm just okay. saying, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. the courage came in screening the film for Jacques Derrida. That was probably... That was a courageous That act. was totally courageous. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was not a happy man. But as we're talking about this film and all that you did with it and how you played with it and how you brought out its own uh, context and created that self-conscious environment, there's, there's power and courage there too. Anyway, it's a nice uh, uh, segue to um, talking about the documentary form itself. A couple of things about that. One is that um, why this form interests you um, and what you think it can open up that maybe narrative film cannot or other forms of art maybe can't do quite so well. Hmm. I find it more challenging and surprising, I guess. Um, I've made one feature film and I wasn't as I said to someone like once I've read the script ugh, who needs to see the movie that was the memory thief yeah, yeah yeah um I'm less interested also in sort of the execution of a scripted scene um I love the sort of I guess it's back to Derrida um but just sort of the 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 endless possibilities because it's such an improvisatory act documentary filmmaking like there's always that element of radical uncertainty and unpredictability, you know, and um, for me, that's more exciting and challenging. Like every day you just, you really, we really, really radically have no idea, like kind of what you're doing and what you're going to get. And so that, that's for me, just sort of just the way my mind works. That's, that's ex exciting and exhilarating. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of leads to the, a question that I had for you about, um, the the position or argument that the f that the documentary can present, mm -hmm. um, and how much that is a a kind of thesis that you understand before you make it, and how much it would naturally evolve through that through the making of it, and through the through the as you say the improvisation of of it too, and if you can reflect maybe on on your learning that way, did you because you do the research and you have a sense of it, but. How much did that get confirmed or understood, and how much were you um, surprised by the process itself? Definitely, we have a vague collection of ideas when we start, and it's totally, you know, surprising where we end up. So things are always getting informed and refined. Like, I can't think of any film that we knew exactly where it was going from the start, and if that was ever you know, closely resembled where it landed. So we don't really have a fixed thesis going in. We have sort of a topic of inquiry, and it kind of finds us, honestly. Um, and we and we shift accordingly. So can you talk about that, say, specifically for... I mean, you did that. You, you had... Uh, I think I read somewhere that you read a Salon article mm -hmm. about sexual assault in the military, which was the impetus for you to try to explore a little bit more what that was all about and where that was going? Yeah, that was just an article by, um, 
I, I think she's still at Columbia, Columbia journalism professor Helen Benedict, and she she wrote about some women who had been assaulted in the military and had no recourse to a, to a, to a system of justice, impartial system of justice. And I was surprised by that and uh, called her up. And, you know, because I consider myself like sort of politically informed. I was like, that makes no sense. Like, how mm-hmm. can that happen in the U.S. Army? And, um, and she was like, you know, Amy, I wasn't writing about sexual assault. She's like, I, she says, I was just writing about women who been in the military now because we were more integrated than ever. It had been 10 years since women had been in higher positions. And I was just curious, like, what were their reflections were? And she said, you know, I have 20 people, like 12 all told me they were assaulted. So I pivoted and made this article. I said, so I said, oh, well, how common is it? She goes, I don't know. So that's all I knew. I have no, I, I have no, knock wood, as far as I know, I have no, no relationship to sexual assault. It's not my issue or anything. I just was sort of puzzled and intrigued and sort of went in, so dove in and we started doing research and found out that not only was her sample, you know, accurate, but indicative of, you know, a systemic, you know, problem. Um, and and then we had to, and then the challenge for us was A, to sort of figure out this, figure out the dynamic and how it works within these institutions, and then also figure out, you know, sort of the narrative to put around it, like, you know, how does the institution allow this to happen, and, and what would need to change, you know, what needs to change in order for it to no longer occur at these epidemic levels and no one had done that work. So that's what I mean. Like we found it in the making of it, you know, and the comment we often got with um, that film when was, why didn't you name the perpetrators? We figured out, and this was in making the film, if we, and we actually had a storyline and we actually had a grid where we found out who each perpetrator was. We were thinking of confronting them, you know, asking them to, to respond. And then we realized that if we came out with a film that was sort of this cat and mouse chase, you know, this horrible story, but then we, you know, each perpetrator was sort of challenged. Um, people would leave kind of satisfied because they think, oh, you know, you, we got the bad guys, you know, and, you know, or they've been shamed or they've been outed or, or named. And we said, no, that won't solve anything. And that's really not what's at issue. We have to put, we have to frame this and have people understand that it's a systemic problem and it's the commanders, you know, that are at fault. And if we do, if we name the, per, if we keep the focus on commanders throughout the film, we'll achieve that. So that was sort of a conscious decision, and it was the right decision. Well, that's that's really interesting because I think um, y- your films could be misunderstood as being, you know, didactic in a way, and just and without, uh, you know, with a kind of preconceived notion and 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 a kind of presentation. That um, I mean, I suppose that right, there there, right, there is right. some critical controversy about that, right? And where, where's the other side? And where? And, and I don't know if you wrestle with that too, though you just gave a beautiful explanation of it. The extent to which there has to be some sort of journalistic objectivity, where you need to open up and to to hear the other side, um, and well, how our, important that might be um, to hear the side of the institution in hunting ground, or to hear the side of the of the military. Though what you did present in the hearing the side of the military was chilling. Well, first of all, I would love to discuss this because it's sort of driving me crazy. Our films are quote unquote objective to the extent that any journalistic act is objective. I would I would say I go to toe to toe with any journalistic article. We do have the military in our films. We did give the Pentagon a chance to respond and they did and they're in our film. Um, in uh, Hunting Ground, we went out to all the schools that uh, and we you know gave them the information and I don't think any of them agreed to do an on-camera interview or send us a response. So there's not much I can do about that. Simultaneously, however, it's interesting, though, and I'm trying to understand the critical response 
Oh, misogyny. There is, yeah, and there is. There are lots of questions that maybe get, um, you know, it's a maybe get directed, you know, inaccurately into questions of objectivity, quote unquote, and some sort of journalistic uh, balance that. Yeah, the and I don't. I, I'm not saying it's a fair. It's a fair shot at all. I'm just saying that it seems to me that it, it begs that kind of question, and I just I'm interested in how you think about it. Well, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot to unpack. I mean, we come out with Invisible War. It's basically, you know, widely acclaimed. Um, wins the Sundance Prize. Wins two Emmys. Um, it's so um, forceful that the Pentagon actually um, ends up, you know. It, it, you know, kind of reluctantly embracing it. I mean, it was such a um, kind of so irrefutable um, that they had, they, we, we kind of had them cornered. They had to kind of accept it because, uh, and in their own way, champion it. You know, there were five congressional hearings in its wake, um, five, and, you know, um, and time and again, when when Pentagon officials were challenged about their policies, they all cited invisible war, you know, as as it laudably cited it. So why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because that film comes out. It's about serial predation embedded in an institution, and the institution itself that it's critiquing doesn't challenge the film, um, but rather now uses it as a training tool on most bases. As a result of our making that film, we went around on campuses just to raise awareness. And every time we screened that on a campus, a student would come up to us and say, please, please, please make a film. You don't need to go to the military. It's happening right here. So we pivot and start making a film called, which ended up being called The Hunting Ground about assault in our campuses. That film comes out just a few years later. And yet, what is the response that we see from those very institutions, and how is that film received? Well, suddenly, it's a quote-unquote a controversial film. Suddenly, um, there's questions about the veracity and integrity of the filmmakers. Suddenly, there's sort of this crazy white noise campaign, which you kind of alluded to, you know, all this sort of challenging about our objectivity. Hmm. Well, let's look at that. It's pretty much the same film as Invisible War, <laughs> pointing out, you know, an epidemic of assault within an institution, the way the institution colludes and, and is complicit with these assaults and doesn't, you know, covers them up and then fails to sort of properly investigate and, 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 and take measures to protect, you know, their students. And yet, suddenly the film is controversial. Suddenly there's questions about the journalism. Suddenly, you know, X, Y, Z. Um, why? Well, let's see. Who are the predators in the Invisible War? Who are the predators on campuses? The predators in Invisible War are soldiers, probably not a very high socioeconomic standing. Um, we know already that the military is sort of a marginalized part of our population. You know, it's not draft. Um, uh, so these are not typically men in power in our society. Who are the predators on campuses? Well, majority are white, middle, or upper-class men. What is that? What, you know, and so it's interesting now in light of the Me Too movement, but this was in 2015 when, you know, so what's the difference there? So my difference there is you don't mess with white male power. You know, mm -hmm. that was just too threatening. And as we saw even with the white vote recently and, and with, with Roy Moore, I mean, um, misogyny is, uh, you know, that that threatened sort of, that threatened the levels of power in our society too much, so it sort of got this sort of backlash. 
anyways, that's my that's my soliloquy it's, on it's, it. It's pretty powerful. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is helpful to you or not, but um, I went, went, uh, watching your your films, um, I was reminded of. Uh, uh, Hamlet's uh, The Plays of the Thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And, and he does in that play what you kind of do as well, and that is to create something that is going to expose truth. And he does so, and the king, the authority, is enraged by it. And Hamlet, exactly. obviously, right? And, and so there's this wonderful exploration of that in that play as well, of the very thing you're talking about, right? You expose truth. And you have, metaphorically, caught the conscience of the king. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I just am so incensed by this. I don't know how to say it well. It's you do like, say it is, well. How and you is say truth it. Uh, an advocacy issue? Thinking of Derrida, Derrida I learned from was, um, he talked a lot about responsibility, and he talked about how it, it, it responsibility is from the word respondre, which is to respond to an other. Um, and it's simply sort of to answer that call. And that's responsibility and sort of, um, so that's how I sort of saw the work I do with these interviews is sort of to responsibly listen and then answer to what they have told me, you know, and honor that and respond to it. And that's sort of our responsibilities to each other, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, Carol Gilligan of In a Different Voice um, recently came out um, with this notion that really struck me about radical listening. Mm -hmm. And that radical listening is really uh, radical in the sense that it, there's a root to the listening process, that there is something else that the other has to say, right? And also radical listening in the sense of maybe it can be transformative in some way. And how do mm -hmm. we get to a point where that can happen? And I think we have to begin by listening to your films, frankly. And then I do ask the question, how do we how do we move? I don't know if you think about this a lot or, or not, but it, it seems to me it's such an important next something phase step future of your work somehow that maybe there can be a different kind of conversation because of the truth that you've unveiled. I think we're seeing that, right? I mean, I think, I think that... We're at that moment. We're at that moment where people are radically listening to women like I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... it's I pinch myself every morning. I mean, it's like it's like in the upside down. What happened? I'd love to know. I, I'm working on a new film trying to figure that out. I am baffled and I am, it is uh, like, I, I, you know, I said to someone the other day, I mean, when this whole thing started, it was like, am I reading the New York Times or am I reading The Onion? You know, um, man accused of assault, man fired. I was like, I literally was like, I mean, again, having been in the trenches on this and having pleaded with people, you know, and tried to sort of um, that, you know, to take these, this issue seriously and take women's testimonies seriously, to have them finally heard. So I think we are radically listening and it's, un, it's, it's, it's exhilarating and I hope it doesn't stop. So, I, you know, I, I think and hope it might be the start of a different world. So can you talk a, a little bit about your current project? I'm, I'm certainly interested in that. And the, the, the timing is unbelievable, really. Yeah. I mean, you were, you were doing this before Harvey yeah, Weinstein. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, that's what's interesting. When The Hunting Ground came out, it was shortlisted for an Oscar, so it had, was in the Oscar race. So I started showing the film at screenings around town in Hollywood and um, for the industry, doing industry screenings for the Oscar campaign. And at every single screening, an actress would come up to me in tears and say, 
you know, this happened to me and they tell me their story. And it wasn't even like make a film on the entertainment industry. It was just like sort of sharing, obviously, you know, as, as these, you know, as we see, it's just very therapeutic and um, for survivors to talk to someone. And, um, and so then uh, what happened, I was on the jury at Sundance and I sat uh, accidentally next to Rose McGowan at some dinner and she turned to me and was like, oh my God, you made the hunting ground. We have to talk. And she told me her story and then I, another, someone else introduced me to Ashley Judd. And I, so I was lined up interviews with Ashley and Rose. This was two or three years ago. And um, we started to try and make this film. And then very quickly we found, you know, when we pitched it around town, we were told, you know, you can't make this film. You know, no one will work with you. No one will talk to you and you'll never get distribution. All over again. All over again. Echoes of the Invisible War, right? Yeah, yeah, same, yeah. That's yeah. the same reaction you got yeah, then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we put a pin in it, and I, <clears throat> we thought, well, we won't do this right now. And then, of course, when the New Yorker and the uh, New York Times articles came out, you know, my cell phone literally, like, everyone I had spoken to was calling and saying, how much money do you need? How soon do you need it? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> we want that movie. And so I was like, okay, here we go. So we just dove, we're, we dove in and we're, um, we're not talking about it yet. We don't talk about our stuff, but it's, um, it's brutal. I mean, it's intense. It's, it's a little strange for us because we're used to sort of quietly following a story and breaking it as opposed to, you know, chasing something that's exploding, you know, and it's a little strange to keep going of going back into this space because it's very dark. Hmm. I have secondary PTSD as a result of making these movies. That's completely uninteresting. And the story's not about me. But why it is interesting is imagine if me, who has no first degree relationship to this issue, gets secondary PTSD simply like working on it. Like, Imagine how warped and damaged and traumatized our culture is if one in three women are, you know, survivors of some kind of sexual assault in our culture. Um, all of their loved ones, you know, are in relationship to them are also survivors. So that's what's been hard for me. Like yesterday, I got a call at my cell phone. It was a 65-year-old woman who had been a very powerful writer in Hollywood, and she was driven out. And she told me her story and it wasn't even, you know, a particularly violent story. But all of a sudden, like, I am like sobbing. <laughs> and she's like, wow, you're like such an empathic listener. I can see why you, mm -hmm. you know, are so good at what you do. And it was like, oh, it, that just flagged me. I said, oh, dear. Okay. You're not okay. You know what I mean? Like, this is still going to be, this is going to be really tough for you emotionally, you know, in some odd way. And like, how do you deal with that? That's what occurred to me last night because I'd forgotten like, oh, I'm going to be triggered, you know. I, I would like to think that it's all part of the power of making your work that much stronger. I mean, yeah. that you remain sensitized to it and that you're not becoming numb to it. Um, I think I think the moment we become numb to it may be a moment of backlash that we need to really be cautious about and that you remain open-hearted and your emotions are, are there. I'm sure it's not pleasant, but I think it's incredibly important and makes oh. you the important leader that you are for us in, oh. in all of this. Well, thank you. That's interesting. I mean, it made me think, why do I do what I do? And why do I care so much about listening to people's stories who, who weren't listened to? And, you know, my dad was a Holocaust survivor, but my mom wasn't. And he was the kind of, I don't know how much your listeners know about Holocaust survivors, but, you know, I often a reaction to that kind of trauma was to just absolutely never talk about it. Um, at least that was my dad's reaction. So it was something he 
would never, ever, ever, ever speak of. And yet what was interesting about growing up in that household is you don't get the pain through the narrative, you get the pain through the repression. Mm-hmm. Um, right? I mean, that obviously it, it goes somewhere. Um, so I think that it's not an accident, and I could have never said this consciously, but looking back at my body of work, I mean, obviously, I think that I was sort of uh, drawn to or fiercely um, incensed by stories of injustice that no one would listen to. Right. Um, because my dad, when he, the one time he did talk to me, um, because I kind of forced him to, I, I don't remember much because that's also you repress, but, um, but I do remember he said that when he did try and talk about it, right, when he was liberated, um, that people told him it couldn't be true, it was too crazy. Yeah. And so his message from there was, oh, you know, I can't talk about this. They're going to yeah. think I'm crazy. And, yeah. and it was very scat, sad and scary for yeah. him. He had felt like he was alone with his pain. And so I just sort of was determined that I wasn't going to let people be alone with their yeah. pain, yeah. no matter what that meant to me or, you know. Right. So I don't have the experience of being a survivor, right? I don't have that referential tangibility, meaning it didn't happen to me. Um, and yet I bear its marks so I think that's why I sort of was always intrigued or interested by, you know, what quote-unquote deconstruction or literary theory opened up for me was how you can bear the mark of a trauma without a first-degree relationship to it. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, and it's very moving to me. Actually. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've certainly heard, um, in echo of what your father was saying, I've certainly heard survivors say, people won't believe it in time. And then the next phrase is, because it's unbelievable. Yeah. And it just becomes this kind of footnote. And, and here we are facing so much Holocaust denial, too. Right. But I think, I, think, um, I think the point you make is that the, the disease in one place doesn't mean that it doesn't spread or affect other parts of the world. And as long as, you know, there's suffering going on, we all are suffering on some kind of level. Right? Yeah. As one, um, one survivor said to me... Um, Either either you are a survivor or someone you loved as a survivor or someone you love as a survivor and you just don't know it yet. Hmm. And she said, so the reason I support your work, because she's a, a, a funder, is because um, if we were not silent about this issue, the world as we live in it would be entirely unrecognizable. Like that's the extent of the, 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 the trauma and the impact. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoy this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening. Thank you.